Stay tuned now for the Mind Body Health Show with host Dr. Marvin Trotter. Good morning, Doctor. Good morning. How are you doing? Doing all myself. Good. Well, we're going to have an interesting show today with Dr. Ron Sand uh, from Oregon um, on palliative care. And this is a multifaceted sort of topic, um, but I think one that has uh, come a long way in the five years. Um, I didn't know about palliative care five years. So first of all, I'll introduce Dr. Ron Sand. Howdy. Hey, thanks. Hi, Marvin. Good to be with you. And uh, Dr. Sand, um, who's a uh, extraordinary uh, family practitioner who somehow does all of this, but um, could you please first define for us palliative care? Yeah, um, palliative care is a, a relatively new form of or field of medical care, and it is um, uh, created and practiced to provide care to seriously ill people who have typically a, a shortened life expectancy and it focuses on uh, people's quality of life and um, helping them to navigate through the medical um, complexity of the medical field during this tough time of their life. Um, so that, that's our focus. Uh, and it's not meant to replace other medical care. In fact, that's one of the things that's different from it in hospice. Uh, it's meant to to actually be another layer of care to fill in the holes, the potholes on the along the way, if you will. So, again, um, uh, first of all, Dr. Sand gets to Mendocino County by driving down Highway 101. Um, but we'll <laughs> we'll get to that later. Um, I think. You know, not knowing what this um, type of service was five years ago, I'm surprised that uh, Madrone Care already has over 100 patients in Mendocino County. And I guess um, I'd like you to um, discuss a little bit more the layers because people who have complex problems, metastatic cancer, et cetera, who aren't, um, who aren't on hospice, uh, who are expected to have a couple of years of life, have uh, a multitude of difficult paths to follow trying to take care of themselves and and their loved ones absolutely um the the level of complexity of the medical care and the and the changes in our patients lives that we encounter is mind-boggling um it just uh, is beyond me sometimes how they manage to do wh what's required of them uh, to benefit from health care and to, to have successful treatment um, without some support. So that's where uh, we come in medically, socially, um, and uh, and even, even spiritually uh, because we work with an interdisciplinary team. Uh, which means that there's multiple different professionals all focusing on, on uh, a patient's care and supporting them. Why don't you talk a little bit about the different types of uh, professionals that are supporting people through palliative care? Um, so we, uh, the palliative care uh, field has taken a, a model that um, ha is historically very successful in hospice and created an interdisciplinary team 
um, that works with each patient. So the people on that team, besides my, besides a medical person, uh, if you will, are also a, nur a nursing person who takes the lead on the team. So they're the case case manager, a social worker whose responsibility is helping with uh, the many social aspects of what families and patients go through. And then um, a couple others. Uh, one other is a spiritual care uh, support person, typically someone who's been trained in, in, um, uh, in that field. And finally, what we call a community health worker whose um, job is to be our boots on the ground and has a uh, high level of contact with patients and their families supporting them through the process. Um, it really is um, amazing to me how many people are working on each individual trying to get things from disability to pulse forms to um, a lot of different aspects of trying to do things. Uh, when you have such a difficult uh, problem, such as metastatic cancer, um, I don't know if you want to take an example of someone uh, to try to tell people what this all looks like, or how would you like to proceed? Well, I like to think of, um, uh, as I we engage with a patient, <clears throat> some of the research that's shown the impact of palliative care on the success of treatment, because if you tend to conflate uh, palliative care with hospice care, this is one, one uh, area where they really do diverge. Palliative care in a um, advanced, well, in a, a cancer, a patient with cancer, let's say lung cancer, um, who's who's undergoing uh, in in uh, may well be undergoing intensive treatment for it, is uh, often the difference between success and failure. Um, it has to do with where do they get their transportation to get to and from their medical care. Um, Gosh, how, who helps them manage symptoms of uh, side effects from uh, from medical from cancer treatment? Um, what happens if they uh, have lost their job and they their finances are in disarray? And um, who helps them sort that out so that they have a way to keep their home um, to to get food on the table, all the the necessary things to have security and stability in their lives? Um, and then finally, uh, people who are undergoing treatment for cancer are uh, facing their own mortality because along with cancer comes the fear in all of us that um, our lives uh, are going to be uh, inalterably changed and, and probably foreshortened. Um, that's our fear. Maybe not reality, but it's our fear. And um, that, that brings a lot of emotional and spiritual um, suffering. That, that needs needs help often. You know, the one thing you said earlier was, I was pleased to see that paper after paper shows that people that are on palliative care are happier and they're in the hospital less. And I think mm -hmm. that's the whole point of this, is that giving people this extensive support keeps them out of the very expensive hospitalization repeatedly over time, and they're a lot happier with how things you know, or going. I think coordination of treatment is a, a, a an amazing thing that I'm always surprised of. I I peripherally am associated with drone care, um, and uh, do referrals, etc. 
Um, and I used to do some of the clinical aspects of it, but it surprises me how complex the clinical aspects of this are. If you're undergoing chemotherapy for lung cancer, um, I'm for always amazed at what different side effects are f- that you get from all the drugs and how you get through it all. Yeah, yeah, that's the ha- hardest part of um, succeeding in treatment is that that. Uh, that every day seems to throw a new wrench at you as to how am I going to get through this? It might be nausea. It might be you can't sleep. Um, it might be that you had to give up another medicine because you couldn't have it when you were on chemotherapy. You know, every day is a different one. And it's only by, uh, well, it's not only, but it's by attending to those problems on a regular daily daily basis with a, a team that people get through it. And if they get through it, their chances of benefiting from the treatment are obviously higher. So why don't you give the audience a, an example of uh, four or five people that are on the palliative care team so they'll have a good idea of the type of patient we're talking about? Sure. So in order to to be eligible for this benefit under Medicaid, for example, or Medi-Cal or Blue Shield or one of the the commercial payers, you have to have um, a a life-threatening disease or a combination of diseases. Um, And you need to have a life expectancy based on the medical judgment of your physician um, of uh, potentially a year or less. So that's a way of thinking about it. It means that most of the people who we care for have an, an organ failure. Um, and I would, uh, and then on top of that, uh, a large number of them have a cancer. And some of them have a progressive neurologic disease, which affects their entire nervous system over a long period of time. And they just have reached a point where their uh, their life is changing much more quickly. Um, so uh, one example would be, as we already talked about, somebody with um, a major cancer, a lung cancer, um, that's not at its early stages, although palliative care is shown to benefit people even from the beginning of, since at the time of their diagnosis. Another example would be somebody with heart failure, and uh, the unfortunate reality in, in our community um, is that we're seeing a lot of more heart failure nowadays uh, related to methamphetamine use over time. Uh, another example would be lung failure. So the most common one there would be somebody who has uh, advanced COPD or um, emphysema. Um, another ex- example would be liver failure. A lot of people in our community uh, experience liver failure uh, in their midlife or later in their life. And uh, it tends, and, it, and it, uh, often, as often as not, it tends to take a progressive, uh, worsening course over time. So at some point they get sick enough to, to uh, be eligible for palliative care. You know, um, go ahead. No, that's right. As uh, hospitals for many years in the hospital, um, the difference that I saw was rather than having repeated admissions for decompensation of your heart or your liver, et cetera, was that attention to detail as an outpatient, getting people to their appointments, are you taking your medications, have you had your lab done, you know, um, uh, kept people out of the hospital quite a bit. I would like you to start. I know that uh, Lynn Meadows uh, had a description of our organization as 
a pyramid with the RNs on top. Uh, could you tell us what the, the day in the life of the RN, and the FMP, and the NB, ND, MD, and the LCSW is like? So people will have a more um, uh, clear idea of what's going on when you're supporting someone. Yeah, so let's start with the RNs. So um, there's a purpose for us and a, a reason that we conceptualize the care that people get on under uh, palliative care as RN driven or RN directed. And the reason is because they they really serve uh, as a case manager, which means they're responsible for all the all the parts of a individual person's care. Um, we consider them kind of a air traffic controller because uh, the way things are structured is it's the RN who reaches out to the other team members to make sure they're they're uh, all aware of the circ of circumstances that are ch uh, may be changing, um, and they're also she's also and I say she because all of our our case managers are women. <laughs> um, she uh, is also. Um, uh, responsible for being in regular contact with the patient and accessible to the patient. Um, and so we we kind of take our uh, lead from them. She tells us what needs, what attention, where. The medical providers, there's doctors, there's also physician assistants. Someday we may have a nurse practitioner. We don't, don't at this time. And our job is to have regular uh, visits once or twice a month. Um, with with patients to help assess them and uh, and help guide them through treatments that um, other doctors might be prescribing or that we prescribe to manage symptoms. Okay, we, we negotiate. We work with the other doctors to to make that um, coordinated and not redundant or uh, you know two people doing one one job. Um, the social worker has a huge job. Uh, it, it surrounds supporting, making sure people have social supports like um, safe housing, like uh, an income to live off of. Um, so, so disability, for example, is something they would work on. Um, they're often involved if someone has a, a substance use disorder, such as alcoholism. Um, our social workers are involved in trying to help them um, move from wherever they started in, into a, a place where they can get better and f or at least and feel better um, despite their disease. Yeah. Just one moment. Uh, I, I, have a, I have a question. Um, you mentioned earlier that palliative care can help uh, earlier in, in a serious diagnosis, but who, who, who initiates that um, palliative care relationship? Is that something that's brought up by your primary care physician or if a patient receives some serious diagnosis, can they inquire about it and who would they approach? Yeah, so I, I'll say my bit, but Marvin knows a lot about that too. Um, in our uh, environment, it's often um, uh, uh, services that the patient is encountering uh, within the community. For example, a nursing service out of the hospital or even in a hospitalization. Sometimes it's physicians who make the referral. Um, sometimes it's family who make the referral. So, um, and, and uh, you do not need to have a doctor. In hospice, you need to have a doctor's order to be referred to a hospice. In palliative care, it's not. That's not a firm requirement. Um, it's we would try to make sure that doctors are aware that their patient is making a request uh, 
and help them understand what palliative care is because honestly not all doctors fully understand that yet um, but uh, so the the referral might come from a number of different places not just doctors um, Marvin what's yeah. your experience um, one thing that we do we try to do uh, I work with the um, um, utilization management team for the 60,000 Medi-Cal patients in Lake of Mendocino County. Um, and through that team, the Compass team, and the hospitalizations and the residents. So often somebody comes in the hospital and they have a diagnosis of heart failure for the first time. They've come in with methamphetamine congestive heart failure. Or they've had their first admission to the hospital, they're sick, they don't know why, and it turns out that they have lung cancer. So they're in the hospital getting acute care, but the doctor's taking care of them in the hospital saying, wow, this person's got a lot you know, in front of them, and they'll contact palliative care. So the case manager, case managers in the hospital, the doctors, families, uh, there's a lot of different ways to um, approach Madrone Care, which is the principal um, uh, palliative care organization in the county. They have an office over by Safeway. Um, but anybody can, can do that. Um, and then it's a multi-prong attack <laughs> I don't know how to say this support I guess attack isn't the right word support from uh, the palliative care organization Madrone Care to address your medical social financial problems which is impressive and I'll tell you that um, you think you have your life together well when you when you're told that you have uh, pancreatic cancer uh, things change and um, things become much, much more difficult. Um, one aside here, if you could tell them what a pulse form is and uh, having a legal uh, signer for things, it's, it's sure. one issue that comes up quite a bit. Um, when, um, when you get a bad diagnosis, you want to talk about these two forms. Yeah. So in palliative care, we talk a lot about how important it is to a person who has an illness to kind of be the captain of their own ship, um, to be able to have um, awareness of what's going on if they as much as they want, uh, know as much as they want about it, um, but also to be able to, to, in return, to speak up about what's important to them, what they do and don't want. Um, so there's two ways uh, that we help people to do that. One is called an advanced directive, and that's a, a, f um, a process of talking about what your wishes are about many things. But one of those is um, if you, if or when uh, you might not be able to speak for yourself as a patient, um, who who is your trusted person that you might know uh, knows uh, what you, how you feel and what you want? So that that's a spokesperson. Um, it's also known as a durable power of attorney, which is. Um, a, a legal term, uh, and you create that by filling out a, a simple form, and and palliative care helps you do that. We we, uh, we sit with you. We t we help talk it through if you need to talk with your family about it, and then fill out the necessary forms to to say what you what you wish for yourself. Go ahead, Martin. And and also the pulse form. Uh, which Dr. Apfel and Boonville worked on a statewide basis for this, because yeah. I think 
um, um, you know, in the emergency department, um, as an ER doctor, if somebody comes in with a terrible diagnosis, if you have metastatic pancreatic cancer, well, if you come in and it looks like you're about to die, uh, you get a tube put down your throat. Uh, you get you put unconscious. You are you know all kinds of things happen to you, and I don't think most people want that. So tell them what a pulse form is. So pulse uh, P O L S T their initials. That's where we get the pulse name. It stands for Physicians Orders for Life Sustaining Treatment, and it's a, a relatively simple form in the sense that it it asks three uh, three questions um, of a pay, of um, a a patient and then the doctor speaks for you with an order um, and those questions have to do with what your feelings are about uh, resuscitation uh, being uh, brought back when you're breathing and your heart stop um, what your feelings are about uh, aggressive um, life prolonging treatment versus comfort uh, which what's your priority and where where would you uh, want doctors to be putting their time and energy and then finally, how you feel about uh, what you want doctors uh, and your family to do at any point that you're unable to eat and drink. So those are the three questions. And once you've answered those uh, with your doctor, they're able to, to write that down on the form, sign their name, you sign your name. And the purpose of this is that when you uh, encounter emergency care, like the ambulance or the emergency room, this form is meant to be there to speak to the doctors uh, with the, the force of an order from a doctor who knows you, uh, who did the form with you. So the emergency responders are able to know what your feelings are at the time it really matters. Yeah. yeah I just want to impress with everybody that advanced directives and pulse forms are uh, important because it allows you to drive the car. You're in in your best alert state now. What what do you want to have happen in an emergency or when th or when you're not competent enough? And I think it's important to realize that you know at least for me, um, that's an important thing. I wanna I wanna know what's going on, um, or that that my feelings are being followed during this time, and not just what happens in the you know some whoever's on in the emergency department. Yeah. So um, I did want to include today, Marvin, if I could, just a little bit about Madrone Care. Okay. Um, so uh, I want uh, your listeners to be aware that in Mendocino and Lake Counties, um, they, you are in the service area of, and all the way out to this means all the way out to the coast, all the way up to the Humboldt border, in the service area of an organization in Madrone Care that um, uh, is accessible. And not only that, but, but uh, evidence would say pretty successful in helping patients with palliative care. <clears throat> and um, uh, that's not the case for most counties in the, ca in the state, I, I uh, regret to say, who don't have a local organization that's putting so much uh, energy and commitment into this. So um, be aware that, that it is team-based care it's uh, it's local, largely local people who are caring for you. Although because of the growing nature of this, there are are people that that do do work from a distance, uh, 
And for example, I do my work of supporting the nurses and the other staff uh, from a distance um, via telemedicine. It, uh, Madron Care does use telemedicine, um, but it also uses in-person visits. Yeah. yeah and, you know, Lynn Meadows, um, uh, a PA that I've worked with for decades, worked with UVMC for uh, years trying to make this a hospital-based organization, and it's a very complex thing to do. So the hospital actually asked her to start a private organization, and that's what became a Mendocino and Lake County-based um, palliative care program, which now has you know 15 or 20 people, and um, you, you have a 24-7 nurse on the phone that we've hired, um, so you can always talk to somebody seven days a week. So it's a, it's a very good supportive care program. Exactly. Yeah, and um, if you uh, are on Medi-Cal or if you uh, have Blue Shield, then those two insurances um, do have a palliative care benefit, which means it's paid for uh, no added cost to you. Um, and, and Medicare does not. And Medicare um, does not. I've always, I tend to think nowadays of Medicare as um, they'll get something done uh, eventually, but not in my lifetime, probably. <laughs> Maybe that's because I'm getting older. But um, no, Medicare has been slow to get uh, on the uh, bandwagon here. One thing before we go to start taking phone calls that I was shocked about was uh, last Monday, uh, reviewing the hospital charts, there were three hospital admissions over the weekend for heart failure from methamphetamines. Mm -hmm. And yeah. we have six or seven people of the hundred that we have um, whose heart has failed. They're, the strength of their heart is a third normal or less, maybe 20 or 30 percent of what normal heart function is for methamphetamines. And mm -hmm. this drives me crazy to have three new admissions in one weekend for 30-year-old people uh, with methamphetamine cardiomyopathy. That's heart failure for methamphetamines. And it's, it's, it's as if the methamphetamines is giving you a little BB heart attack every time you do it. So instead of having a heart muscle that squeezes, it looks like a little squish toy that moves every once in a while. And I didn't... You know, I didn't. I never saw this uh, five years ago, and then I read about this that you know used to, methamphetamines came from Sudafed, and remember you used to have to sign something or show your driver's license if you wanted Sudafed for your stuffy nose at the pharmacy. That was very effective. So the drug dealers got smart, and now it's made from P2P, phenol to profanone. And you can use it from, and you can use multiple different chemicals to start this process. And in 2006, um, it started being manufactured. Where it used to take the Hell's Angels, uh, you know, a week to make a pound or two of methamphetamines. Then they had the bigger labs where they were making 10 or 15 pounds in 24 hours at these super labs. Now they're making 900 tons of it in large 747 warehouses in Mexico. And it is ubiquitous. I am shocked uh, working in the emergency room. People come in, I'm not feeling well. How many of them have positive methamphetamine uh, in their urine? And this is a plea to anybody. If you think methamphetamine is a good time, it isn't. 
And when you all of a sudden you're 34 years old, gosh, I can't breathe well, and your lungs are full of water from heart failure, and you have a life expectancy of less than two years, guess what? It's, you know, uh, I think you've gone too far down the road. So I just want the callers or the listeners to understand that methamphetamine has gone from, you know, a Chevy uh, Nova to, you know, a Maserati now. And it is a terribly addictive, heart-destroying drug. Was that was that too emotional, Ron? Was that you know? Uh, well, you know, in your shoes and mine, um, it's hard not to be emotional about this because you you watch people go through it way too often. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, we're going to open up the phone lines now. If you'd like to ask uh, Marvin or or Ron a question, you can give us a call at seven zero seven eight nine five. Two four four eight. That number again is seven zero seven eight nine five two four four eight. You know, and you say we must be doing something right if the state is giving us cash bonuses um, for meeting their criteria. We must be doing something right, and and the nice cards we get from people. You know, because I think you made a point earlier how uh, socially and Emotionally, this is a very tough thing to go through when you get a bad diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And there's there's just uh, too many people out there who, when they're faced with that kind of a crisis in their life, um, they might not have uh, others to turn to. Um, I, I think of the homeless who are often isolated from their families. Um, and have no and don't have uh, and the addicted uh, who might not be homeless at the time but the same may be true so um you can imagine how uh how supporting them with a team like this could could help them get their feet back under them uh suffer less have a better quality of life uh i have a question uh is, what, what does the patient's experience look like facing this team how much interaction do they have with the various members of this team and what 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 could be expected from them yeah so the fir- the first interaction they'll have is with our our uh our front office staff what we call our patient care coordinators um we're going to stop because we have a call and we'll come back to that. oh yeah we'll come back hello hello caller you're live on the air ah thank you so much for taking my call so i'm a little bit confused about madrone i'm not clear is are there facilities, um, madrone facilities, um, or um, is this a yeah, something that happens good. in patients' homes and other other facilities? And I'll take the answer off off uh, on the air. Thank you. Actually, that's another way of saying what Eddie just said. So, oh, okay, yeah. Thank you for calling. Um, uh, so the, what to know about madrone care is that it's a, what's called community-based palliative care, um, uh, which in palliative care ter- parlance we uh, make separate from hospital-based palliative care and outpatient-based palliative care, which would be in the hospital or in the office. So madrone care is not in the hospital in an office. It's actually community-based um, and largely home-based. Most of our patients, we go to their home to see them. Some of them, we go under the bridge to see them. Um, we go to wherever they're located, um, and and or we connect up with them 
by video conference, for example, from wherever they're located. So t tell them how often they would see someone in their home or how often the doctor and the nurse LCSW contacts them. Yeah. So um, after that first encounter with the patient care coordinator um, uh, and the exchange of information, et cetera, um, you'd have a, a first visit typically with um, uh, one of our providers, uh, either in your home. Uh, we try to do every first visit face-to-face -face in, in someone's home, regardless of where they live. Um, and that is a time for an hour or two for um, them to gather information from you and to, to tell you about the services and to assess your symptoms and to ask where you need the help and what kind of help you want. And that's followed by regular contact with your nurse case manager. Um, and uh, that would again be either in person or uh, video, video linked or telephone. And then over time, uh, typically in the first month, you'd have contacts with uh, the social worker and an offer to contact from the, the uh, spiritual care member of our team. Um, and uh, if needs were addressed uh, during those first visits, then the community health worker would be coming out to help you with with things that you and they identified. And then this happens on a monthly basis. There's these, um, tell them about the frequency. Yeah. So it's a cycle um, and usually based on a month for, for most of the team members uh, that they would make contact with you. Um, they always uh, contact you first before they come. Um, and then there's some things that only happen uh, every third month, for example. Um, these are based on the, the insurance companies, actually. They tell us how often uh, they want us to see a patient. And, of course, the circumstances. So there are times when we need to see the patient uh, or make contact even every day, especially if somebody is getting close to dying. Um, so... Um, to show them the specialty, I didn't know, maybe 10 years ago, you started having a specialty in palliative care. Could you tell them, talk to them about Zara, Dr. Ishmael? Oh, yeah. So um, uh, nowadays, uh, doctors can specialize in palliative care. Um, used to be that we could do so uh, by um, completing a, a series of three Marvin? Um, we're going to stop you for a call, and we'll come back to this. Good morning, Kelly. You're live on the air. Hi. Thank you for the program. It's good. As I'm listening, and I've thought about this before, both palliative care and hospice and different services, and what happens is, as I'll be listening, it's like, oh, this sounds really good. This could really help. And then it's like, oh, well, that's not going to work. And mm -hmm. or, no, but it doesn't cover this. Anyway, and so, gosh, I could say quite a few things, or at least a few things, but what it, what's occurring to me is that what would just exponentially help uh, real health care would be, because I'm guessing a lot of people like me really need custom work as, mm -hmm. and compared to what is available for various reasons, it just doesn't fit. And so if there was a group of people who basically just interviewed 
people, like doing the research, the human research, interviewed people that did need health care support and just took notes, took notes, and then, you know, compiled them, figured, figured it out, then people could be covered. Okay. And, it, and maybe three things that are specific is it needs to come in, it needs to happen uh, sooner, like before it's the emergency, like something like palliative care, uh, like when I got my final injury to where I couldn't work anymore. Once you can't work anymore and you don't have an income, boom, then homelessness is there. It's like a rolling snowball with skis and poles sticking out. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to answer your question here in a, in a general sense. Um, having been a primary care internal medicine doctor in an office, there's no way you have the capacity to do things like palliative care is doing. And in fact, primary care is um, uh, becoming more difficult than easier, you know. Um, and um, your view of having a socialized medicine, much like the Scandinavian countries, is is an excellent example. And I and I agree with what you're saying, but palliative care uh, could be used in lots and lots of different instances. In fact, the county does try to use uh, this sort of system with the Compass team, trying to find help for the homeless, the indigent, uh, people that are struggling. So the county tries to do this on a regular basis with the Compass team. Uh, but unfortunately, palliative care, uh, which is a difficult thing to pull off with very difficult patients, uh, is only for people with a life expectancy of less than two years, wouldn't you say, Ron? Uh, even one year, often. Okay. Yeah, it depends on the insurer. And I yeah. think your point of doing this proactively for lots of things is important, but we're not there. Just maybe think about it and pray about it, because okay. we could keep people out of, yes. you know, we, could, <laughs> yes. we need to catch people sooner. Yes, I agree. Yeah, very, very sure. Um, so tell us about Zara. Because I think people... Oh, okay. You know. Sure. So, um, Dr. Ishmael is uh, one of our physicians that works at Madrone Care with us. She works part-time with us because she, she lives in Los Angeles, and uh, her main job is actually running a palliative care program in a, a large hospital in the L.A. area. So she runs a team, uh, is the lead physician, sometimes the only physician on their team, um, and... Uh, because of her interest, I think, in learning about community-based palliative care, she has joined us as a board member and a physician um, and brings her specialties. Now, 13, 14 years, it sounds like, of practicing palliative care uh, to our organization and to our patients. So she's one of um, a couple of physicians that work with us right now. We have another call. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Good morning. Hey, um, so I want to get back to palliative care. Um, if a person is really at the end of their life and and wants to die, is there does palliative care offer any um, assistance if they're if they've been suffering right, for a right. long time? Great, 
Great question, and Dr. Sand is the perfect person to answer it. Thanks for the question. <laughs> okay. So, um, so a person uh, nearing the end of their life who is preparing um, uh, to to pass to die um, has uh, has choices that they can make. One of those um, uh, that I will I would fully endorse is that. Um, uh, hospice organizations cover a part of Mendocino County, a large part, um, and Lake County, um, and they are focused uh, like a laser on people's quality of life, comfort, being able to be uh, in an environment that they uh, that they feel comfortable in, um, relieving the stresses both for the patient and the family. Um, so that's one I would consider. Um, and then palliative care is not the wrong choice. Uh, it might be the right choice for a person in that circumstance if they want to uh, continue to receive life-prolonging care. So as long as that's within your, your wishes and your goal, then um, where hospice isn't able to tread, uh, palliative care can take uh, take a lead and do it for earlier. Do it earlier in the course of a person's life. But, Does that but, answer your well, question? I think also what he's asking about is um, the right to um, take morphine or other medications and pass away when you want to once things have become impossible to carry on, and that requires two physicians, et cetera, et cetera, to go through that process. Okay. Sir, is that is that where you were? What you were asking about? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, just in brief, uh, this is a whole conversation in itself. But in the state of California, um, for some years now, we've had uh, a law in effect called the End of Life Options Act, um, and uh, that law allows a, a person to request um, their physician or or other physicians, if necessary, assistance in going through a um, a process of of learning about. Uh, what that would look like and making a choice for themselves whether they want to have the option to use the medicine to de decide the time and the circumstances of their own death. Yeah. So medications... And you need two, two physicians yeah. to uh, get that permission? The process, yeah, the process has two physicians. One's your, the attending doctor who is the lead doctor because they're the one who has the most contact with you and, and helps with prescribing, etc. And the other doctors can call the consultant doctor who has a role to play of giving a, a second opinion before um, a person gets the medication. Yeah. Thank you for the question. We have another call. Okay. Um, I think that, you know, again, I think that call shows you the complexities that go along with something when you have a bad diagnosis. Everything from a pulse form, a right to die, you know, who's getting your transportation to go see your chemotherapy, you know, or radiation therapy every day for five weeks. It's mm -hmm. it's a complex thing. On a happier note, um, I want to go back a little bit with Madrone's history because we uh, started with Lynn, go Lynn Meadows going from the hospital to the primary care. But you can also talk about Jenny Grissom, who now is an LCSW. The two of them started everything. And maybe you could explain what an LCSW is, because we need a lot more of them. 
<laughs> yes, we do. So when you start an organization uh, such as Madrone and focus on a geographic area such as uh, a county or two counties in this case, um, what what you'll find is that uh, that your need for um, skilled, trained people to do the work with you grows over time. And uh, we were very fortunate with Madrone Care to have a core group who were able to come together and do this. But as more patients began to come to us, we had to grow, grow our group and grow our workforce. So one of the key ways we've done that is on-the-job training, and that means that someone can enter our workforce uh, at one level and engage in training both on the job and, and more formal training and and uh, move move to different jobs within the organization. So we have one of our social workers who's uh, began with us um, more as a, a community health worker type role and has played, She's because she's so talented, she's played other roles, but finally she's completed her training in, in uh, social work. She is, uh, um, uh, social worker now, um, and uh, Marvin used the term LCSW, which is uh, another uh, um, additional training for social workers. It stands for Licensed Clinical Social Worker, um, and uh, that allows uh, a social worker to actually include um, uh, forms of psychotherapy uh, and um, and counseling in their jobs. So that's what she brings to the team that provides the palliative care. So Madrone Care started out with the four horsemen of the, I won't say apocalypse, uh, the, <laughs> the four people that uh, really started things off was uh, Dr. San, Lynn Meadows, Jenny Grissom, and also Steve Franey, because I'd like you to talk about Steve Franey because there's a lot of business aspects to this that are is very difficult, but we're going to take a phone call first. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Oh, good morning. I just wanted to say that um, I've been working with Madrone Care Center since 2019, and being alone and being really sick, one of the things that hasn't been mentioned is that Madrone Care, um, they, they really care about their clients. They give us a net that we, we, we know that if we fall, they'll catch us. And they definitely have provided unbelievable care in the work of their social work department, their parish department, and the doctors and nurses there. It's not—it's not like going to the doctor. It's like adopting a family. And I just wanted to say that it, I'm really grateful, and That's I just very wanted kind to say that. <laughs> Thank you. Mm-hmm. And that's ex- and that's exactly what we're trying to do, Doctor Sin. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. Um, so, uh, Mr. Franey, uh, Steve is our COO, so Chief Operating Officer. And um, uh, I think it's fair to say that uh, Steve, Steve is <laughs> is the driver of our bus. Um, and uh, I would also say that there, there is no one else I'd rather have in the driver's seat uh, for this endeavor. Um, uh, we were fortunate to, to uh, have Steve agree to, to be part of this, and he brings with him a whole career of working in the health field, working with organizations, working with teams, working with payers like insurance companies, um, and uh, maybe most importantly, he brings to us uh, a um, 
a frame of mind that everybody's uh, important uh, staff and patients and he's willing to get down into the weeds to, to make things happen. Um, so we're, we're very fortunate to have Steve. He's yeah. the most sensitive MBA I have ever met. <laughs> That's true. You know what I mean? Which is not necessarily known for their sensitivity. No, yeah. I'm talking about who is this guy who's an MBA? Um, yeah. You know, and I was really touched by what the last caller said because that's exactly what we're, you know, you guys are trying to do. I'm more of a peripheral thing, but I think that sort of family support, that this isn't just um, here's your penicillin for your ear infection, that they really are trying to support you on a medical and emotional and community level that mm-hmm. that is really um, exactly what we're trying to uh, get to per, you know, what the last caller said. Yeah. Um. If there's another caller, I have uh, yes. another comment. Yes. I, I just wanted to um, to bring up to other team members uh, an, an example of a community health worker. Um, we we have one community health worker now, and and we're recruiting for another. Um, she uh, is a. a no, actually, not that's not a position that's present on a hospice uh, interdisciplinary team typically. But what we've learned, um, I think, is that having somebody who can uh, be out and about and uh, bringing things, transporting people, um, so helping them uh, with simple how, things around the house that, that they couldn't do on their own, um, has made a world of difference and probably one of our most valuable team members um, is the community health worker. Yeah. We have one more call. Good morning, Carl. You're live on the air. Hi. I'm interested in asking um, and finding out about how, uh, if you could please give a phone number and contact information okay. for Madrone and also how healthcare prof- providers who um, might want to join your team could do that. Mm. Yeah. So, um, Marvin, do you want to give them that information? Or? Yes. I always get this um, phone number wrong, but I'll tell you what it is. It's 707. It's 350-5080. Did I get that right? Uh, yes, I did. Um, I'm sorry. I got it wrong. 707-380-380-5080. I don't know why we have such a screwy phone number. 380 <laughs> 5080 and uh, we would love to have people that wants to wants to join um, or contact us good morning caller you're live on the air hi just a, a quick scenario a 93 year old woman chronically depressed for the last at least two years she's going into a care home not here I'm sorry to say but um, and it's palliative care she, she hasn't got any life-threatening things, but she can't hardly walk anymore. Um, I don't know what's life-threatening and what's not, but anyway, it, would she Qualify. be eligible? Right. Okay, Dr. San. So, um, so she's 90 years old. She, does she live in the state of California? Yes. Okay. So, um, she's 93. 93, yeah. And uh, she's... Um, She's aging and she's losing uh, abilities to do things, but does she have any organ failure? 
No, she's got the beginnings of dementia. Seems that nobody yeah. cares about the emotional side of it. At least yeah. The, yeah. Anyway. So um, I think the care home that she's going to uh, has a role to play here, and you can support her in ha- in making sure she has uh, a physician uh, and a nurse and nurses that are attending to her condition. Um, uh, and whether or not they can bring palliative care to to bear will depend um, on the location that she lives, which county she's in, for example. Um, so I, I would advocate for her and and speak up for her needs that way. And the nursing homes also have an ombudsman, if I pronounce that right, you could call. Yeah. yeah. Good morning, caller. You're live on the air. Yeah, so I've, I've uh, been listening to the whole hour, and I don't recall anything, any mention of any other sorts of care uh, other than there are doctors and nurses. Are there physical therapists or acupuncturists or any other sort of uh, medical providers that are involved in this sort of uh, scene? Good question. Great question, yeah. So first off, let me, let me um, point out that uh, palliative care is, is, again, only a layer of care. So uh, there's all the care that you might think of, physical therapy, for example, acupuncture, uh, home health even, those are uh, equally accessible. And many times we help make the referral for a patient to get those things. Um, and we may even help with transportation if they need to go someplace to get those services. Yes, but so it, is there is there a list of these sorts of practitioners that are part of the Madrone family right. or right. however you want to call it, yeah. umbrella? Yeah, this I think you bring up a good point. But we help you uh, contact you know physical therapy or in home health care. But Madrone Care in itself doesn't provide those. There's no physical therapist that works for Madrone Care. I think is your question. We're going to take one more call and then we. we oh no no okay. Let me, um, lots of good questions, and I'm going to say the phone number again, 380-5080, 380-5080 is where I would start. And um, Madrone Care is focused on failure, as Dr. Sand said. If you have liver failure, heart failure, metastatic cancer, um, um, you know, life-threatening diseases that could end your life within a year or two. This is the what we're looking for, or what we're allowed to to treat. Blue Shield, Medi-Cal, Medicare isn't there yet. Um, but then the organization tries to hook you up with whatever you need, even though we're not providing uh, in-home health services or physical therapy. Uh, it's certainly something that we shoot for. Dr. San, any closing comments? No, I really appreciate the opportunity to share this uh, this vital uh, information to people in Mendo and Lake Counties, um, and uh, I I think I have something very um, unique going on here. Um, I can't think of another county that has quite this the same local commitment to palliative care that that Mendocino and now Lake County have in California. Um, and I hope that we uh, can continue to serve your needs. Yeah. Thank you very much, Dr. Sand. Mm-hmm. All right, and thank you for tuning in to the Mind Body Health Show. Coming up next, uh, Loose Cannon Classics with Susan Jewell. Stay tuned.
If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM. KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM. And Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.